Well, please stand with me as we rise today to read our sermon text. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to the book of Acts as we'll be in chapter 1 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 909. If you're new to us at Redeemer, it certainly is our ordinary practice in the morning and evening services to preach through books of the Bible, start to finish, just bouncing back and forth between the Old and New Testaments across the genres of Scripture. And for the last seven or eight months or so, we've been in some short New Testament epistles, followed by a short four-month or so series through the Psalms of Ascent. And it seemed right for us to, in the morning service, get back to a longer study as we turn this morning to the first of what might be about a year's long worth of sermons through the book of Acts. And we want to look at the first 11 verses today. So let me read those for our our attention and then pray for our time and, and we'll begin together. So listen now as God does speak to you through his word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, would you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Now, Father, we do delight in your ministry to us this day by your word and through your spirit. Do open our hearts with your Spirit's strength and by your Spirit's power that we might observe wonderful things in this truth, that we might keep it with our whole heart. Help us to hear meekly and urgently for me to preach clearly and courageously as you expect us to listen and as you expect me to preach. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Henry Martin was part of what we now call the modern missionary movement in the early 1800s. He was a young Englishman that was desperate to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And it was in 1804 that he was appointed a chaplain with the East India Company. 
And so he set sail for India and was there for the next five years. He was speaking about Jesus Christ. A fair amount of his time was spent in translating the New Testament into languages as they were referred to at the time, Hindustani and Persian and, and Arabic. And after five years of service in India, the Lord directed his steps to what was known as Persia, now modern-day Iran, and he served there for three years before the Lord took him at a very young age all the way home to heaven. And it was in 1803, as he was desperate to receive a call and see his desire to preach Jesus Christ come to fruition, that he found himself on a sickbed one day. He was laid up with something of a strong fever. And he's got these famous journals in certain parts of of Christian history. And it was on that day in 1803 that he asked in the journal, how can the missionary spirit be intensified? How can the missionary spirit be intensified, and then he, he wrote out his answer to his own question, saying, live near to Christ, catch more of the Spirit, because the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions, and the nearer we live to Him, the more missionary, intensely missionary we become. And it's a good word for people setting out on a series of studies through Acts, because I trust that what the Lord might do among us and through us and in us over coming weeks and months is help us to live near to Jesus Christ, to catch more of his spirit, remembering that the spirit of Christ is indeed a spirit of missionary activity, something that we're going to see quite plainly in our text today. And so students, when you come to the book of Acts, you need to know that many people will initially begin their study asking the question of whose acts are in view. You might have a Bible that says the Acts of the Apostles, or some people think it's the Acts of Jesus Christ, or others might say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I say, well, why not all three? Why can't it be the continuing acts of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ by His Spirit and through His Apostles, it's helping us understand a simple question. Frankly, the Bible's answer to a simple question. How does the gospel advance in the world? That's the kind of question that genuine Christians want to ask and answer. How does the church grow? How does the gospel go to the ends of the earth? But it's not just a question like that that Acts means to answer. It means to help us consider other key questions for the Christian life. What does it mean to preach Christ faithfully? What does it mean to suffer for Christ boldly? What does it mean to pray for Christ uh, urgently? Rely on Christ's spirit uh, dependently? These are questions that you're going to want to pay attention to on the way in the coming weeks and months. But there's another question that we want to hear erupting increasingly within this church. As in a unique way, Acts is going to, I trust, call our attention to consider. Because few books in the New Testament, frankly, few books in the Bible, so earnestly call for conversion like this text does. So few books in the Bible, so immediately cry out for the way of salvation like this book does. You you might know well enough, it's only one chapter into this book, that you find this question asked for the very first time, a question that subsequently asked in multiple Chapters in multiple places by many different people. What must I do to be saved? And we want to be a kind of church, don't we? We want to see God's Spirit through this very particular book in God's perfect Word forming us in our life together in such a way that it's increasingly common that we're asking questions like that. What must I do to be saved? What does it mean to 
tell my loved one about the way of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that along the way in our study of Acts, we might see the Lord increasingly using us to bring about his converting power. The old preachers would say that ministers are seldom blessed if they don't continually aim for the conversion of souls. We should say, shouldn't we, that churches are seldom blessed that don't continually aim for the conversion of souls. So we're going to think about along the way today in the first half of chapter 1 is simply a theme that is Christ's commission to his church. We want to learn right from the outset of this wonderful book what Christ demands from his people, what Christ expects from his people, what Christ calls his people to be in their life and mission together. And so there's three simple things I want to work through with you today. The first of which is the prologue in verses 1 through 3. For look again at what we're told in verse 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. One of my favorite series of books has turned into a best-selling and much-loved series of movies that have the soundtracks that I listen to with some degree of regularity. Irregular enough to know that the first song of the fourth movie's soundtrack is simply titled, The Story Continues. And what Acts is here to say is, Christ's story continues. Because in the first two verses, what we get is the author and the audience of this book Of course, we don't know exactly from these two verses that Luke wrote the book, but it's clear in context of Acts and even his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, that Luke's the one writing this. He's that person who says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's a short summary, isn't it? Even just that initial part of verse 1, what what the Gospel of Luke was all about. It's about Jesus' words. It's about Jesus' works. It's about what he did from his birth to his ascension to the Father's right hand in heaven. And just as this book is dedicated to the audience of Theophilus, so was his first book in the Gospel of Luke. And we know essentially nothing. We can't say really anything with confidence about this man, Theophilus. It seems most likely that he was a new convert to Christianity. And so Luke is writing these two volumes, volume 1 and volume 2, to catechize, to teach, to train Theophilus in the way of Jesus Christ. It's quite likely, too, that Theophilus was probably Luke's patron and publisher in these works. But he's helping us understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to continue to work in his church and work through his people. And if you glance down at verse 3, we, we find out more, don't we, about Christ's Days in this time before he ascended to the Father, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What a theological intensive seminary experience that must have been. For six weeks, wandering about, walking about, eating across the table with None other than the resurrected Jesus Christ and him teaching and training you in the truths of the kingdom. Telling the disciples by many proofs who he is and what he must do. And kids, if you notice, even verse 3 tells us something significant, doesn't it, about what we call the gospel. uh, The good news that he presented himself alive to them. Well, that he presented himself alive to them, doesn't it? 
clearly infer that he was dead. But he didn't stay dead. It's not using the word resurrection, which is going to show up all over this book in the chapters that are soon to come, but it's reminding us that Jesus Christ died. But by the Lord's power, he was raised on the third day. And that reality is what means our preaching has purpose, that our sins are forgiven, that our faith is not in vain, that unlike all the other religions of this world that will look to perhaps a man who lived, but who stayed dead, we worship and adore a man who lived perfectly, And obediently to God's law, dying a sacrificial death, but he didn't stay dead. Because the Lord rose him again from the grave three days later. And it does tell us also, notice verse 3, something about the nature of Christ's death. As it says that after his suffering, he presented himself alive by many proofs. It's telling us, isn't it, that it wasn't just an ordinary natural death. That belonged to Jesus Christ of of Nazareth. It was a death of of suffering. It was a death of affliction. It was a death of of hardship. Because surely in that theological, intensive seminary experience, many proofs uh, would include things like turning to the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, and showing all these prophecies, all these truths from Genesis to Malachi that pointed to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, the long-expected Redeemer of God's people. But, but surely you know your Gospels well enough to know that some proofs that he offered to his disciples were with his hands, with his feet, because it was there that stake-like nails were driven through to pin him to the cross at Calvary, that his body was broken, it was bruised, it was bloodied, and this is what it meant for Jesus Christ to take away sins And so what you see in the subsequent sermons that punctuate Acts is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel, this good news of salvation, it in every way is this epicenter to their preaching. It's the desire that they must communicate with increased earnestness and and boldness. It's the only thing that's frankly important to them. And why they're so successful is because of what we see now in verses 4 and 5 as you move from the prologue to the promise And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You know, students, when you come to a book like Acts, it's always good, isn't it, to remember that what we are reading is nothing more than a historical record of Christ's work by his spirit and through his apostles. It's always good to remember that Christianity is in every way founded upon history. Some of you might know that it was about 100 years ago that Presbyterian Church here in the United States was embroiled in a controversy that became known as the fundamentalist modernist conflict. And in many ways, what what lay at the core of, of that conflict was over whether or not Christianity was a historical doctrine or a historical faith. Because the fundamentalists, of course, arguing for the orthodox view of Christianity, saying that Christianity, what's true in the Bible, is, is genuinely true, historically speaking. All the supernatural, miraculous events actually happened. But then you had the modernists, the liberals on the other side, that were less interested in the historical reality of Christianity. They were much more interested in the experiential application of Christianity that may or may not have actually happened. And so it was during this controversy that a Princeton theologian named J. Gresham Machen, he was 
uh, delivering his inaugural lecture at Princeton Seminary, and he said, quote, the student of the New Testament should primarily be an historian. The center and core of all the Bible is history. The Bible is primarily a record of events. And what you get here in Acts is a history, a historical account, primarily a record of events that the apostles did in the power and according to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because you see again in verse 4 that Jesus tells them his first words from Luke's pen in this book are all centered upon the Spirit, that they're to stay there in Jerusalem. It's possible that Jesus said, well, you need to stay there in Jerusalem because you could turn to any number of Old Testament prophecies that would say God's law and God's word was going to go forth from Zion. That's essentially, for example, what Isaiah 2 verse 3 says. Or it could be, and it probably is true, isn't it, at some level, that in God's sovereign irony, he means for Christ's reign to burst forth from the very place of Christ's rejection. But as we're actually going to see in chapter 2, it's, it's most centrally, isn't it, that they had to stay in Jerusalem because there was this coming feast of, of Pentecost. Uh, this, this gathering, it was a multicultural, multinational, multi-generational gathering of people. It would be the perfect stage from which to launch this new covenant era of Jesus Christ where the Spirit would subdue the nations. And of course it is that very Spirit that he emphasizes that you will be baptized not many days from now with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever considered what life would be like without God's Spirit within you? I trust that you might be able to say it would be horrible. It would be miserable, or perhaps what you need to understand today, it would be utterly impossible to glorify the Lord and obey Him and serve Him and to honor Jesus Christ unless His Spirit has been poured out into your hearts. The most necessary thing for the apostles at this moment, the most necessary thing for the advance of the gospel, the most necessary thing for the early advance and building of Christ's church is that the Spirit be poured out upon them. Wait. Because he's coming. And this is in fulfillment of a promise that's many, many centuries old. Because again, he says that they're to wait for the promise of the Father, according to verse 4. Uh, you might know that uh, Jesus himself, only a few weeks before, had told the apostles that it was, it was better that he leave them behind. Because in leaving them, he would then pour out his spirit upon his people, this great comforter, this great helper for their ministry and their calling. But it's not just the word of Christ that brought forth the spirit. Of course, it was in fulfillment of God's promise. So many prophecies, again, in the Old Testament, you can point to in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel chapter 2, verse 8 is soon going to show up, that the new covenant age is going to be the new covenant era, this time of the spirit's work in and through his Church, the Spirit is the promise. You see, the prologue is one of history, and let's focus most of our attention, though, on verses 6 through 11. The program, Christ's program for his people. In theological circles in which our church exists, so that smaller world of reformed Christianity there is a Dutch theologian by the name of Herman Bovink that has captivated many a heart in the last 20 years or so as his dogmatics have been translated from Dutch into 
English, and he's a man that has earned much hearing from no small number of Christians, no small number of pastors. Uh, but his nephew, Johann Bavink, is a man that was well known in his time in Holland too, and he's a man that I want to tell you about very briefly now, because he was a man that bounced back and forth in his ministry. Think about this time a hundred years ago. He would minister, preach the gospel, pastor churches in Indonesia, then he would return to Holland and basically do the same thing there, preaching and teaching. Then he would go back to Indonesia and continue his work of church planting and preaching. Then he would come back to Holland. And the going back and forth, of course, these different perspectives that he enjoyed and experienced allowed him to have a unique way of thinking, a specific thought upon Western Christianity at the time as it thought about church life, as it thought about Christ's commission to the church. And in a famous textbook on missions, he said this, people wish to remain quiet. He's thinking about the churches in Europe at the time. In peaceful little churches under high Gothic arches, they would brood about God and be preoccupied with the needs of their own souls. They do not want to be shocked by the bewildering idea that there are still many hundreds of millions of people who have never heard the gospel. And Acts, my friends, is here to help us in a spiritual sense, a glorious sense, be shocked into the commission that Christ has for his church. Because you see, even in verse 6, don't you, the apostles got it all wrong initially. When they had come together, they asked, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's possible that their question to Jesus was one of just sincere ignorance, misunderstanding that we could perhaps comprehend. But John Calvin, I think, rightly said there are as many words in their question as there are errors in the question. Because you can think about it. They've spent, we've just been told, these near six weeks in this intensive seminar with Jesus Christ. He talked to them about the kingdom of God. He talked to them about the advance of the gospel, no doubt. The subduing of the nations to himself. And as he's about ready to ascend into heaven, they don't know this yet, but they come along, don't they, as somewhat ignorant people from Galilee might at the time. And they say, well, Jesus isn't about time to restore the kingdom to Israel. And they have a misconception, don't they, of Christ's purpose. They have a misconception, don't they, of the church's mission. Because where they were thinking locally, Christ is going to think globally, where they were thinking politically, uh, Christ is thinking spiritually, or they're thinking culturally, uh, Christ is thinking savingly, where they're thinking immediately, uh, Christ is thinking lastingly. How many Christians, how many local churches today perhaps misunderstand what Christ wants them to do? How many are expecting Christ to pour out something upon them he said, now is not the time for that. How many might not have the commission correct in their own thinking? So what Jesus does is correct their thinking on his commission. And you'll see what he answers with at first. And verse 7 doesn't seem like an answer itself. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The students, you may have answered or asked them, sorry, a question of some teacher or parent before, a question that uh, received an answer that's something like, well, you don't need to worry about that. It wouldn't make sense to you anyway. And it seems as though almost Jesus is saying that to the disciples. Well, you want to know about the restoration of the kingdom. Don't worry about that. Uh, you wouldn't understand the timing of it anyway. You know, don't fixate your attention on things that, that aren't for you. 
But here's what you must fix your attention on. I want you to see three things in verse 8 from Christ's commission. Number one, the strength of his commission. He says, when you are but, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. At the end of Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, he has the language here of of being clothed with power from on high. It's a language that corresponds to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, where it talks as, as the Spirit coming upon this young virgin teenager named Mary. That same supernatural strength that brought forth the virgin birth is the same supernatural power that's going to overwhelm the apostles and lead them in their faithfulness to Christ's commission. Why then can they preach with such power? Well, the spirits come upon them. Why then can they pray with such faith? Well, spirits come upon them. Why can they be beaten and bloodied and walk out singing songs of joy, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name? Well, the spirits come upon them. Why can they have faith in the midst of hardship, daring in the face of death, courage in the face of opposition? Well, the spirits come upon them. Maybe you need to think about a place in your own life this day where you're finding obedience hard, faithfulness difficult, and pray that the Spirit might fill you evermore, that you might have the power to obey Christ's commission. So the Spirit, of course, is the strength of the commission. Notice the center of the commission as the text continues. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You're not to bear witness about yourself. You're not to tell the truth that's calling attention to who you are as my people. You're to tell the truth about me, my words, my works, my person, what I've done, what I am doing, what I will do. That's to be the center of your entire existence. And isn't it so always necessary for us as a church to remember that's the center of our existence together. All of the other things that so often can preoccupy our attention, personal preferences, comforts being coddled, are far and away into the background when when Christ is indeed the center of our charge. And you'll see not just the strength and center, but the scope at the end of verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And you want to read a verse like that and walk out today praising the Lord. Because why is it in the year of our Lord, 2022, that people as far away from Jerusalem as McKinney, Texas, are worshiping Jesus Christ? His church has been faithfully empowered by the Spirit over these many centuries to take the gospel to the ends of of the earth. And so kids, if you were to hear a word like that from Jesus, this scope, it might sound something more particular to our context, like you'll be my witnesses in McKinney and DFW and Texas and Mexico and wherever you go in the world, you will be my truth tellers. Isn't that who you are to be? Wherever the Lord sends you, someone who speaks of the salvation that's found in the Savior These are his final parting words, aren't they? For you'll see what comes, notice verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven 
There are signal events, aren't there, in the life of Jesus Christ that you would, you would love maybe perhaps when you get to heaven to almost have this, this holy film session of the life of Christ. What, what did it look like? What did it sound like when he was on the cross there at Calvary? You know, what did it look like? What was the shock across the people's face when after he was resurrected, he just appeared in the room where they were gathered saying, peace to you? What would it look like? What did it sound like? As he rose on the clouds to his Father's right hand in glory to be seated at his right hand in power and therefore now as the exalted and ascended Savior can pour out his Spirit upon the church. Well, you get a sense, don't you, even in this passage, what the disciples were like. It's almost like they were dumbfounded and amazed. These two angels surely show up in white robes and it's almost as though they say that we might say in Texas, what are you guys doing? He's going to come back in the exact same way that you saw him come. Don't stare up into the clouds anymore. It's time to, what? Get to work. And I want to consider two things here at the end as we consider how Christ wants us to get to work. Friday of this week was an unusual day and Stone household. It began just like an ordinary day. Emily was working at the hospital, as she always does on Fridays. The kids had gotten up early in the morning and were eating breakfast. And I kind of stormed into the room and I said, quick, get your clothes on. We've got to go somewhere. And of course, they began to say, well, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? I said, it's a special day. Because the younger two were going to go to my in-laws, which is their definition of the best day ever. You know, you get to spend all day with Nana and Papa. And the reason why is because Emily and I, for a few weeks, had been planning this special daddy trip with the four older boys. And the day commenced, and it went about how we were hoping, with the end of the day, bringing this extraordinary reality in their life. As they've told us many times over the last 48 hours, it was the best day ever. But some of you parents might sympathize with us to know that, of course, we didn't tell them anything before, about minutes bef- before us departing, because if your kids were or are anything like ours, if we had told them weeks ago this was going to happen, I'm not so sure they would have slept for the last few weeks. <laughs> Certainly, they would have been distracted from all their schoolwork, or even some of my children may be counting down to the very hour. It's 72 hours until we're going to leave to go to this place. I'm sure even one of them might have it down to something like 211 hours until we go to this place. You know, you don't tell them those kind of things because, of course, what's hard for them to do? Wait. And I would imagine many of you are like that, aren't you? Wait. Well, the two final things regarding the work of the church from our text today that we want to consider as we begin to close is, first of all, that the church is a waiting community. He's saying in the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies... The greatest thing that you could ever experience is about ready to fall upon you. But wait. Don't do anything. Stay where you are. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm leaving you. But if you understand, I'm actually not leaving you. And we can rejoice, can't we, that we are on the other side of this story, that we no longer have to wait for the poured out Spirit into our hearts, that by faith in Jesus Christ we can receive the fullness of the Spirit that guides us, that leads us, that illuminates the truth unto us, that regenerates our hearts, that brings us true faith and repentance. So we're not waiting for that seismic event, are we? But we are waiting for another seismic event in the text, aren't we? My kids, which one is it? It's the Lord coming back 
on clouds of glory at the end of all things, as another book in the New Testament would say, we are waiting for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Or at least, I hope we are waiting for it. When was the last time you bowed the knee in prayer saying, Lord, send him back. Bring again the son that will make all the sad things become untrue. You know, if you come to our prayer night tonight, I trust that you'll hear many a a humble and sincere prayers for that very thing. Uh, We're a waiting community. Uh, We must understand, of course, principally, according to this passage, we're a witnessing community, aren't we? A witnessing community. The task that he has entrusted to us is to tell the truth about who he is and what he has done. And the immediate reference in the original audience, no doubt, for Christ's commission in verse 8 were, was the apostles uniquely charged to take the gospel to the ends of the known world at the time. But we must remember, must we, or shouldn't we? Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That isn't our commission, the exact same, to in the place where we find ourselves to be witnesses of his word, witnesses to his work. And no doubt that means for you, if you're a member here of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, you have to pray for this pulpit, you have to pray for the preaching because it's the ordinary way that we bear witness in our life and ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must pray that it would be true, you must pray that it would be powerful, you must pray that it would be sincere. But that's not the only thing, of course, related to our witness bearing, is it? You know, parents, what are you but witnesses of Christ to your children? Grandparents, what are you but witnesses of Christ to your grandchildren? Students, what are you but to be witnesses of Christ to your peers? Employers, witnesses of Christ to your employees, workers, workers who are witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ to your bosses, certainly on our streets and our communities, witnessing to our neighbors. So what then is the church's commission but to wait for the Lord's return? Our work is waiting and As we wait, we're always about the business, Jesus says, of bearing witness to him. It's a glorious commission he's entrusted to us. And he wants us this day, he wants us this coming week, he wants us next month if he tarries, this year, and to next year if he tarries, to be about that faithful commission. Because that is what he has given to us as we wait for his return. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be faithful to your commission. We want to be obedient to your commands. Help us in reliance upon your spirit and dependence upon your power to speak the truth about your son where we find ourselves. Let this church always be faithful to that, we pray, according to your grace and for the glory of your son in whose name we pray. Amen.